What the hell just happened? The focus of this podcast is to help, educate, and empower survivors of narcissistic abuse, domestic abuse, and intimate partner violence. The survivor stories shared here chronicle what the hell just happened to them and how they were able to heal, grow, and thrive. Many victims of this kind of insidious psychological, emotional, and even physical abuse are left reeling after the relationships end, wondering if they're crazy and responsible for what's happened. I hear you, I see you, and I believe you. You're not alone, you're not crazy, and you're not to blame. Let's talk about what the hell just happened and discover how to heal, grow, and thrive. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. Today, we're speaking with Bryn Kowalczyk, who is a survivor of narcissistic abuse, as well as a soon-to-be certified narcissistic trauma coach. Welcome to the broadcast today, Bryn. So happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you for coming and sharing your story. So can you tell um, everyone a little bit about your background and your history with narcissistic abuse? Well, it starts pretty much from the day I was born, (laughs) born and raised. Now that I understand what narcissism is, um, I can very clearly say that my parents both have very strong characteristics. Um, And the type of childhood sort of propelled me into becoming a very codependent person, a people pleaser, seeking attention. Um, And now that we understand more about narcissism. I, I can see how I became a magnet and attracted every single one I could find. <laughs> so I'm currently married to a diagnosed, uh, covert, passive aggressive narcissist. Um, I'm in the very beginning phases of filing for divorce. Um, ready to go on my own healing journey and be able to help others once I've taken care of myself. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is amazing. So can you go back to um, your childhood a little bit, you know, and tell me a little bit about, you know, your parents and your upbringing. And um, I understand you have a sister and mm-hmm. kind of like, what did that look like growing up with parents like that? So my parents were on the younger side. Um, my sister and I were not planned. And that was very much well known as we were kids growing up. Um, we were kind of determined as accidents or oopsies, as my mom would call it. Um, my parents really treated us like we were a job. Uh, We had clothes, we had food, but there wasn't any type of emotional nurturing. Uh, There wasn't any type of um, life lessons, personality uh, uh, praising. Um, There was a lot of criticism. 
uh, I was made very much to feel responsible for their feelings. And if, if my dad came home and he was in a mood, I had to stay, you know, stay away. They were never physical, uh, very much more emotional, um, abusive or neglectful, I should say. They weren't, um, uh, so I, I was made to feel very guilty for doing things that were not wrong, just, um, things that kids would, would normally do, but I was always made to feel bad about decisions that I made instead of getting any type of praise. There was always a demeaning sort of, um, context. Uh, my sister, uh, we're only 18 months, uh, difference in age. So she's 18 months older than me. Um, she learned very quickly that if she modeled herself as a poised, smart, um, student and child that she could fly under the radar and she would get the praise where I was the younger child and I wanted attention. And, um, I was demeaned a lot for that. Um, a lot of mocking from my parents. Uh, they used to sing me the Carly Simon song. You're so vain. Um, yeah, they, uh, they didn't teach my sister and I to be friends. My sister went the opposite direction of me. She created walls and barriers and didn't let people in. Um, very much um, manipulative. She would do things under the table, like uh, poke me with her pencil. And I was the reactor. And so I get verbal with her or hit her back and I would be the one to get in trouble because no one saw her doing anything. So there was very much a, a competition between her and I. Um, but she also was just extremely manipulative. Um, she enjoyed she enjoyed watching me not be loved by people. Um, based off of my reactive personality, just as a little kid. Uh -huh. um, and even growing up, we were never really friends. Um, and even now, we can really push each other's buttons. She's a gaslighter. Uh, if I have any type of e emotional response to anything that she says, it gets thrown out. See, I can't even talk to you. You always just get so mad. It's like, I'm not mad. I'm just... I just want to be heard. And I feel like uh -huh. even though I'm speaking English, you're not hearing what I'm saying and it, it gets twisted. Uh -huh. um, anytime that there was a hard situation as a teenager um, that I needed parent guidance on, it was never given. It was... Um, always bounced back to my mom. Oh, well, that's kind of like the time that your dad and I broke up or, oh, you know, your friends, uh, they're just jealous or, um, oh, you got fired from your job. I was fired from my job to, you know, it was never, there was never any um, sympathy or talk about what took place. It was always bounced back onto her and how she went through something similar but there was no comfort 
And there's a lot of really um, mind boggling situations now that I'm a parent uh-huh. that I would never ever imagine handling the way that it was handled. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, my parents uh, really uh, like to participate in alcohol and there was a lot of uh, very horrible things that were said to me while my mom or dad were under the influence and there was no acknowledging it the next day. It was as, as if they had done nothing wrong and I was the problem. Uh-huh. Um, and that's that's a really hard thing growing up because I had all of these friends who idolized my parents. They wished that they were their parents or they preferred to be at my house, you know, to everybody else. My, my mom was amazing, but now I understand that it was behind closed doors Uh that all these other things took place. And I had this, horrible guilt ever feeling like I didn't like her or that I just didn't, I didn't have a bond with her. And because of always being made to feel that I was in the wrong for something, I felt like it was wrong of me to feel that way because she was my mom. Uh um, I have learned, I would say I'm 42 years old now. I would say about five years ago, maybe even closer to four, I learned that I have to love them the way that I can. And I can only expect them to love me the way that they can. Uh And the same goes for the way that they are with my children. Um, You know, the there's, they they don't really engage very much. they, I, I see them doing similar things with the way that they talk to them. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, they, they say something that would be considered an embarrassing flaw and they'll vocalize it, but then say, oh, I'm just kidding, you know? And it's, it's a trigger for me because I see it happening because I understand it now. Uh-huh. Uh, and I've, I've had to explain to my children it has nothing to do with you. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is some people's brains just work a little differently. Yeah. Uh, to relieve them of feeling responsible for others. Absolutely. So in a nutshell, that was uh, how I was raised. And um, I remember in high school, um, just thinking that I was, um, moron and that everybody could see right through how how stupid I I was and I was so starved of emotional attention that if somebody gave me a compliment I like your shoes I would literally get a full body buzz it it was just um like such an a euphoric feeling that I that somebody randomly gave me a compliment to the point that I would take my shoes off and give them to them just like me you know but I felt like everybody looked at me like oh she's oh just Bryn 
Um, when in reality, I was a really good person and nobody thought those things of me, but I had such low self worth mm-hmm. that I also thought I was, um, I stood out for being an obnoxious, bad kid. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally relate. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of parallels. Um, it's interesting how you it sounds like your parents really triangulated you and your sister and that whole dynamic and really just the utter emotional neglect really making you feel as though you know and you internalizing it like there's something wrong with me always something wrong with me Mm -hmm. Um, the utter selfishness and self-centeredness that was exactly how I was raised as well and that feeling of just like never fitting in never being heard um, it has a tremendous impact growing up Mm -hmm. and developing like that not having that bond and then Mm -hmm. internalizing that um and feeling guilty that somehow it's my fault Mm -hmm. that I don't have the the relationship with my mother that society um says I should have and you know and the guilt and the you know the horrible um Mm -hmm. internalizing of that is it's so damaging, so damaging. And it is really just growing up gaslit that you're the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from the beginning, you're the mistake. And mm-hmm. now I got to deal with you. Um, kind of mentality. Comment. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but this might, this might hit some people. Um, because my parents did drink so much and, you know, smoked cigarettes you know my my mom claiming that she, I didn't even know that I was pregnant with you until I was five months and I remember us asking well mom did you quit drinking and smoking once you found out and she said Bryn the damage was already done oh, wow. <laughs> wow and but she'd say it in a way that seemed like it was just okay yeah. you know it wasn't like a mother dearest all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it was very passive aggressive. Yeah. But it was also very just never took ownership. Yeah. Never took ownership. Yeah. Just normalizing what? that. That. Yeah. Whatever was wrong with you was already going to be wrong. So what was, what's the point of quitting? I mean. Yeah. Yeah. My mother, you said something like, oops, you know, like, and then you were born. Mm -hmm. And that was how I was told that I came to be as well, that it was a total Mm -hmm. accident. Oops, I realized I was pregnant. And then you came. Mm -hmm. And the utter damage that it does to childhood development, you know, now, obviously, having your own children and seeing, you know, how different and how how a normal development and normal attachment should be. You can definitely kind of look back, reflect back and understand, oh, yeah, like this actually makes a lot of sense 
as far as how I ended up where I am and how, how things mm -hmm. transpired because of that damage that was done so early. So I can really relate. <laughs> I can really yeah. relate to a lot of what you've already shared. So as you were, you know, in your teenage years and then going into young adulthood, how did that all kind of play out as you started to have some relationships, romantic relationships or friendships as you were getting older? Um, uh, luckily, as far as friendships went, I have a, I still even have my core group. Mm -hmm. um, having friends was very easy for me. Um, and luckily for me, I picked out very good friends. Mm -hmm. The boyfriend aspect was the bad part. Um, uh, the, the one type of praise that I did receive mostly from my mom growing up, um, was you're so pretty. You're so pretty. Oh, we used to be a model. Bryn, Sherry. Um, and I grew up truly believing that people would like me based off of how I looked, mm -hmm. not who I was. I was never taught about who I was or why I did things that I did. It was just belittled or, you know, uh, laughed off. Mm -hmm. Um, but I went into relationships thinking one, I'm getting this attention, which felt wonderful because I had never had it before. Mm -hmm. Now I understand that that would be called love bombing mm -hmm. and it felt like heaven. Um, and relationships would skyrocket and then plummet. And I was stuck thinking, they just don't think I'm pretty anymore. What, ha you know, oh, maybe I need to cut my hair or maybe I need, you know, and I, I thought about changing my outer appearance to accommodate their view of me. Um, and it had... I, I, it never dawned on me that it was a one a personality thing or two they could have been a narcissist I didn't know what that was um all I know is I was seeking them going back to the beginning how it was in the beginning mm -hmm. um I dealt a lot with um depression I dealt a lot with anxiety I would um think um uh superstitious things like, oh, I changed his name in my phone to uh, my babe or, so, you know, and he hasn't called me in three days. Maybe it's because I changed his name in my phone. Let me change it back and see if that opens that door up again. Just could not wrap my head around being ghosted or uh, somebody just not liking me because I was always told I was just pretty. Uh, you know, why don't they like me? Like I jinxed um, it, you know, I, I jinxed it or I, yeah, yeah, yep. something like something that I did something wrong, something mm -hmm. I did caused mm -hmm. this, that I'm at fault. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, I had these very, um, hmm, I, I, I 
didn't give myself any type of um, worth. And I figured, you know, well, because I was intimate with that one, then I might as well be intimate with this one. Um, You know, and in the back of my head, I always felt icky about it. But I never really um, understood that I was seeking love and attention by having someone be physical with me because in ways that was the easiest way to get it. Uh Um, And there was a lot of shame behind that, which added into the shame of me thinking I'm a moron and, oh, they don't think I'm pretty anymore. And, you know, it was just constant cycle that created just so many racing thoughts all of the time. A lot of um, just extreme anxiety can't sleep. I can't work. I'm just always thinking about this other person and why they didn't want to communicate with me anymore. And there was never any closure on relationships. It was all of a sudden like, oh, they have a new girlfriend. What happened to me? Or um, any of the guys that I did end up um, connecting with that would have been a safe person. I couldn't do any more than a week or two being around them because they were too nice. Uh And they liked me too much. (laughs) Oh, I just like bad boys kind of thing. And no, that was actually Mm -hmm. just a normal person. Mm -hmm. And what I crave now is a safe, normal person because I've, I, I, I understand it now. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, the excitement and the uh, adrenaline that courses through your body when you're with the bad boy or with, uh, you know, a narcissist Mm -hmm. is, it's actually like our baseline from how we were raised and we think it's butterflies, but it's actually anxiety in our system Mm -hmm. of, of a warning of danger and we think it's excitement and passion and no, that's not what no. that is. Um, it's funny. The nice guys are, you know, boring and yeah. we actually don't feel that adrenaline rush. So we think, well, there's no chemistry. <laughs> yeah, it was almost uncomfortable yeah. to be around. I didn't know how to act around yeah. a normal person. Yeah. Yeah, we only knew how to feed into a toxic dynamic yeah. that that was similar, felt similar to what we were raised in. It totally, mm-hmm. totally understand that. So, um, did you, you know, what what happened as you got older? Did you get married? What what kind of what happened next? So, um, I ended up going to cosmetology school in my early twenties. Um. I excelled. I, I I found my people. I found my jam. Um, I became a hairstylist at 21, and I had a natural gift for um, attracting just the most amazing client base. Um, I grew my business very rapidly, and uh, about five years of working at a salon, um, I ended up opening up my own, mm-hmm. and right around that same time, um, I had a client telling me how you don't have a type. 
you just date anybody, you know, it was like any, any Joe Schmo that gave me any type of attention, I'd give them a chance. And, um, I remember her telling me at one point, you need to write down a list of the qualities you're looking for in somebody and be specific. You know, what, what kind of car do they drive? What kind of job do they have? And once you get familiar with that list, uh, you will, you'll know when you meet that person. And I'm like, oh, you know, and so I went home and I wrote down a very superficial list uh of of course not knowing that there's personality traits that people have and there's core values i didn't know any of those things existed because i was never taught about myself um or other people for that matter so i wrote down qualities oh they need to be taller than six foot they need to drive a truck i like someone who works with their hands oh sarcastic sense of humor and uh about two months after I wrote out my list I met a friend out for drinks and um when I got up at one point to go to the bathroom when I came back there was a guy sitting in the chair I was in talking to my friend and somehow he turned and looked in my direction as I was walking up and we locked eyes and I literally knew in a second oh that's him that's my guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ended up having a seven-year relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, after, uh, after about the fifth year, um, I was getting ready to turn 30. And I remember talking to him because we never really talked about marriage or anything like like that um it just kind of felt like it would be assumed um and I remember having that conversation about you know I'm gonna be 30 I'm like I'm ready to have a kid I would like to you know and um he was he was all for it and in hindsight there's there's so many layers to this relationship that I'm skipping over um that we can you know, kind of reflect back on and address. Um, but ultimately about, um, I think it was about two months after I found out that I was pregnant. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Two months before I think we started trying. Okay. Um, he, we lived in this, uh, river community. It was a golf cart community. There was a little bar down at the end of our street. And I remember one night he had asked me, um, let's go down and have a, a drink at that little corner bar. And uh, we went down there. It was a Saturday, maybe around 5, 5.30. It was very empty. And um, his dad was there, and he was very well-dressed. And this was a very not – it was a hole-in-the-wall kind of place. Um, so the, he was a little out of place. And I remember thinking, like, why is he so fancy? And uh, we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, my um, boyfriend takes a box out and sets it on top of the bar. And it looked like a jewelry type of box. And I looked at him and I said, well, what's that? And he goes, you know what that is? And I said, no, I don't. What, what the heck is that? And he goes, you know what it is? Open it up. And I open it up and there is this beautiful diamond ring in the box. He never even got on his knee and asked me to, to marry him. He just gave me a ring. 
And that really hurt. Um, but it also reminded me of a lot of other things that had taken place in those five years where I felt very much taken for granted. Um, kind of sit there and look pretty, but don't have an opinion because uh, you're never right. I'm always right. Anything you've done, I have done it 10 times better. Oh, you made dinner tonight? Let me come by and taste it and I'll fix it before we sit down and eat kind of personality that he had. Mm-hmm. And now here, I can't even get like a proposal. Um, but of course, he wants me. So that's good enough, you know? Mm-hmm. So ultimately after that, we uh, conceived um, about six weeks after my son was born, I found out uh, through a uh, follow-up doctor's appointment that um, I had thyroid cancer. Mm. And I remember um, not understanding what, I'm 30, I just had a baby, how do I have cancer? And uh, I remember after getting off the phone with the doctor who told me the news, I tried calling my son's dad 17 times I tried to call him and it was the middle of the day, but he never had his phone by him. He's working. And, uh, there was a big conversation we had had prior to this phone call even taking place was I'm nine months pregnant. You need to keep your phone by you. Uh Um, again, the low self-worth, I'm just not even worth you having your ringer turned on. So I call him 17 times. And at this point now I'm frustrated, um, so I get off the, you know, I hang up the phone. I call my mom and dad, my grandma, who comes over immediately. And ultimately, I ended up posting it on Facebook. I know what I was looking for was support. I needed support. I needed somebody to hear what happened to me uh-huh. because the person I'm relying on can't even answer his phone. And um, I remember the four o'clock time frame rolling around and here he comes walking through the door and he sees my grandma, he sees my parents and he looks at me like a deer in the headlights. And he goes, why did you post that to Facebook? I don't even know at this point that he knew anything, right? He never called me back. And I, I said, what do you mean? And he goes, All of my friends are calling me, asking me if you're okay. You have everybody freaked out, Bryn. There's many different types of cancer. This is just your thyroid. And that was the beginning of the end Mm. for me. Um, Not maybe understanding at that point, but as time then started to, you know, continue on uh, through surgery, I just, I felt like I could no longer trust to rely on him for anything because my issues were very diminished. Uh They were brushed. I wasn't allowed to feel scared because I'm freaking everybody else out. Um, And after maybe my son was uh, now going on about a year old, I remember feeling so much anxiety, hating my life, feeling alone. I feel like I could be in a room full of people and I was all by myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember searching things like how to become a better person, you know, how to, um, how do I stop feeling like I'm just an awful person that everybody views me the same way too, that everybody just 
nobody loves me. Um, and I just, uh, I remember coming up with stuff about, you know, seeing a therapist and I started doing a search for therapy nearby and I came across this woman's picture and I called just because her picture, she felt safe. Mm -hmm. And I called her to make an appointment and just hearing her voice on the phone, I felt like I had lifted a thousand pounds off of my chest and she ended up getting me in to see her, I think the very next day. And she changed my life. That very first appointment, she sat down and told me that you're a puzzle. You're a puzzle and I want to get to know you so I can start putting your pieces together. Um, Because the reason I went to see her was because I wanted to find out what was wrong with me. Uh And it was her in that first appointment that asked me about my parents and asked me about my childhood. And for the first time ever at the age of 31, I actually spoke words that I didn't even realize I was viewing them as. Uh Um, I spoke the truth. I didn't sugarcoat anything. I spoke about my sister and I spoke about my fiance and the things that, you know, and she was the first person to say, have you ever heard of the word narcissist? And I'm like, I mean, yeah. And she goes, I, I think this might be what you're dealing with. And now I can clearly say that he's the nicest narcissist you'll ever meet, but he was a one upper, Mm. you know, just no, no validation from him Mm -hmm. that I was, ever going to be his one and only person. And um, he, he never cheated on me. He never did anything like that. But I would never be viewed by him as important enough to be scared about having cancer. Mm-hmm. Or and it, it, <laughs> what else? I mean, what worse is there? <laughs> yeah. And uh, about five... I want to say about five months after um, starting therapy every week, I created my exit plan and I moved out and I promised myself that I would never, ever live unhappy ever again. And I rewrote my list and I took a lot of things off and I added a lot of things and got more detailed. And two weeks after moving out of his home into my own with my son, my best friend said, uh, Brynn, it's been two weeks. We're going to get you out of the house. I want you to put your dancing shoes on. My daughter's going to come over and babysit. And we're going to go have a girl's night. And it was my very first night uh, as a single mom now. And uh, we went to go see this band play, and I just was letting loose. I was having a great time. Mm -hmm. And around midnight, I recall this um, very beautiful blonde bombshell of a girl approaching me and saying, hi, um, we, we just got up here. I'm up here with my brother, and he just thinks you're the prettiest thing he's ever seen. Would you meet him? And uh, I did meet him. And two days later, he called and asked me to take me on a date. And I'm now married to him. And it's been uh, eight years. 
And two years ago was when we got his uh, diagnosis of covert passive aggressive narcissist. Uh, wow. It, he really pricked me. He's yeah. How did you, how did you, how did you manage, first of all, how did you manage to get him in therapy to even get the diagnosis? Like, how did that all come about? You know, how did you get to that? So our courtship went very fast. Um, He was checking things off of my list so rapidly. I mean, within the first week, he had everything checked off. Uh, I, I was blown away that I met my soulmate. It was fate that we met that night. Um, and he felt the same. I mean, I've never had anybody fall so hard, so fast for me that felt so right. Um, it, it was magic, honestly. It was magic. And about eight months into our uh, dating, uh, it was New Year's Eve. And I uh, was uh, getting my nails done. And when I got back to my home, um, I opened the garage door and there was a note on my garage door with roses around it. And uh, basically uh, this note put me on a scavenger hunt through my house. And I ended up in my bedroom with uh, flower petals everywhere and the most heartwarming letter laying on my bed uh, that told me... um, uh, dress warm and don't look out the window. I'll be getting in touch with you very soon. And uh, I remember running into my bathroom and I'm brushing my teeth and I'm, you know, just in this uh, giddy, like, what is going on here? No one's ever done this for me before. Like, uh, and I eventually get a text message from him that said, okay, open your blinds. And so I go to the window, I open my blinds and it was like, I'm in Chicago and it was like the weather outside was like somebody shook a snow globe. It was the most beautiful Mm. snowstorm ever. And coming up around the corner of my house was a horse and carriage and it pulls into my driveway. And I went downstairs and he gets out of the carriage and kneels in the, the snow with tears in his eyes and gave me the most beautiful proposal with the most beautiful ring and champagne and a blanket and we went around the neighborhood Mm. and um i would say pretty much the next day is when i started to notice some red flags uh it was as if i was his now wow yeah uh my life was apparently supposed to change um, and the way that he would, uh, make people feel uncomfortable, you know, I, every Tuesday I'd have a friend who she's my very best friend. She's my business partner. Our children were the same age. You know, my son was 17 months old. Um, every Tuesday we had the day off and she'd come to my house in the afternoon and we'd have, uh, you know, the kids play and we'd be drinking some wine and he'd come home from work and see her there and, almost side glance scowl, not even acknowledge her presence, nor say hi to the kids or to me. Um, And he'd go upstairs and I would look at her like, what just happened? And she's like, like, is he mad? Like, I, like, you know, I, like, I understand we're engaged, but we're still only eight months in and there's a 
who is this person? And uh, maybe 20 minutes later, he'd come downstairs as if nothing happened. And he'd be almost like a totally different personality. Hey, how are you? So how's your day? And very boisterous, very, uh, and it was, it was really weird. Um, then maybe I'd come home from work on the phone. And because I was on the phone, he'd give me a cold shoulder for days. Um, I didn't give him a long enough kiss when he came home from work. And he wouldn't talk to me for the night, but he would never tell me that there was something wrong. Um, and these things started happening more than not. Um, and around um, maybe a, a year after we got married, we, we bought our home and we tried to have trying to conceive. And I remember one time uh, taking a pregnancy test and uh, it was positive. And when he came home from work, um, I said to him, uh, hey, I have some good news and I have some bad news. And he goes, okay, what, what's the, the good news? And I said, well, I'll tell you the bad news first. Bad news is you're going to have to quit smoking cigarettes. And he was like, why? And I said, because I'm pregnant. And it was like somebody switched a light switch off. For the next two months, I was married to a monster. He started treating me like an alien. Uh, he was nasty to me. And um, I didn't, like, I had no idea what was going on. Uh, anything I said, he would try to pick a fight or respond with a very bad attitude to the point where I just kind of stopped talking to him. And ultimately I was like, okay, this is enough. I need to get out. I, like I, I need to leave him. And we had just moved into our house and I had an ultrasound appointment at my six weeks and they couldn't find a heartbeat. And I remember th thinking, thank God, thank God. Like, I don't want this baby. I don't, I, I don't want anything to do with this. And they rescheduled me for two more weeks to come back. And that morning, I didn't even tell him I was going. I didn't even want him with me at that appointment. And he was getting ready for work. And I was downstairs sweeping the, our kitchen floor. And he walked past me and he goes, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, nothing. And he walked up to me and he threw his hand in my face like this. And he said, your aura is bad. I didn't even, like, I still don't know if he even knows what an aura is. So I'm telling you, he was a different person. And I went to that ultrasound appointment and there was no heartbeat. And we scheduled the DNC for the very next day, which was the Friday before Mother's Day. Mm. And I could be happier. Mm. Now I needed him to take me to that appointment and so we get there and the grief counselor is in there talking to us about the waves of grief and how other people handle things differently and just be there for each other. And I am thinking, shut up. Let's get the show on the road because the faster this is done, I am out. Right. Okay. So doctor finally comes in, does the procedure. I wake up in recovery and he's sitting next to me like the original person I met that light switch flicked back on and here he is oh. hey honey how are you feeling oh you must be so hungry 
I'm going to take you to your favorite place after this and get you some food. And I'm sitting here thinking like, did I imagine all of that? Was I hormonal? And I was just not seeing things the way that they were. And I started, I was questioning myself and, um, I got pregnant again a few months later and it happened again. And during that pregnancy is when I told him, um, we need, we need to go talk to somebody. I never for a second let him push me around. I was, I'm I'm a reactor. Yeah. I was vocal about the way he was treating me. I was very vocal about these red flags and these demeanors and the, I called him down in the dumps, Jason. I started calling him 50 shades of Jason. Um, and I, I said, I'm not, I'm not putting up with this. There is something seriously wrong with you. And that's pretty much when he told me his, uh, childhood victim story. And I started to view him as this poor abused child. And I thought with enough love and attention and affection, I could fix him. Mm. But we need to go and talk to somebody mm-hmm. because I want to help you. And we ended up in therapy. Problem was, was that uh, we couldn't go at the same time. And it really wasn't deemed a marriage issue. It was an individual issue. And I would go every Tuesday and about whatever took place the last week. And we saw, you know, it was the same therapist. He had permission to talk about each other's sessions, but he's also obligated to talk about what the patient wants to talk about during their session. And my husband would go in at his time and, you know, yeah, I, you know, I really want to talk about how to not bring my stress home from work. And that would be the topic for the day. And so there was never any accountability. Nobody was there to hold him accountable. Uh, I saw the way that he would be with my son. Um, I saw, I remember telling him that I, I would never trust him to be alone with my son if I wasn't there. Um, just because he would be passive aggressive and, you know, he was only at that time, three years old, um, in front of me, he would be dad of the year, stepdad of the year. When I'm not there, he was not okay with him. Um, one time my son walked up behind him when we were in the kitchen and, you know, my husband backed up, not knowing he was there, bonked him in the head with his behind and it, my son hit his head into the corner of our granite countertop and started crying. And my husband turned around and looked at him and said, dude, you need to watch where you're walking. He's three. You hurt him trying to get him to apologize. He looked like he'd, he was ready to throw up then just say the words. I'm sorry. You know, uh, it was, it was so bad. And even just talking about some of these things is getting, you know, me, me worked up right now because I haven't done my healing yet. I haven't, you know, now just reflecting back thinking what the hell was wrong with me? Why did I keep giving him a chance? Mm-hmm. And so, um, 
fast forward a number of years, it was May of 2020. I had an appointment with one of my clients who had some tragedy happen in uh, her marriage. And um, it was my first time seeing her since this tragedy happened. And the entire appointment was just extremely emotional. Um, I I don't know how many times we cried, how many times we hugged. And um, I absorbed what took place her story, I absorbed it almost as if it had happened to me. Mm-hmm. And for almost a week, I went through a grieving process, almost as if someone had died. I had, and I was very vocal about it because I didn't want him to, to get into an episode thinking that I'm ignoring him or not paying enough attention to him. Um, so I, I told him, I said, I'm just really in this funk. This story has really hit me. Um, I just, this has nothing to do with you, but you know, please don't punish me for not being my normal self because I just, I, I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this way. And, um, I went through this, this full process and her appointment and the story was told to me on a Friday. It was finally the next Thursday. It was my day off. The sun was shining. It was a beautiful day. And I, I, he sent me a text that morning and asked me, how are you feeling? And I said, I am feeling so much better. I'm going to turn my, my ringer off today. I am going to be in the moment with my children. It was summer vacation at that point. And um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna love on them as much as I can because I feel so much better. Oh, and don't forget, your mom is coming over tonight. Uh, she has some papers to for you to look over. So I get I'm gonna throw burgers on the grill. I'm gonna make some macaroni salad, you know. And and it's almost like I had to sort of like pacify him in ways to make him feel feel loved enough. Uh You know, so like I I almost have to like make up for that time lost by being over the top. Uh And um, he said, oh, that sounds great. Sounds wonderful. So later on that afternoon, I take my kids to swimming lessons. I had a wonderful day with them. When we get home, his mother had already gotten to the house and he they were at the kitchen island and he was hyper focused on these papers for him to sign. To the point that when we walked in, he didn't even look up and acknowledge us. And I didn't think anything of it. Um, They said hi to grandma. And I I shoot the kids back outside to give them their privacy. Let's get some ice cream. And when they were uh, done, they they came outside. And I remember um, at the time, I uh, hate saying it, but I did smoke real cigarettes. I've quit now, but um, at that time I did. And our little phrase to say in front of the kids was, Hey, I'm going to take a quick five. And, um, so he knew what that phrase meant. And I remember when him and his mom finally came into the garage by us, I I said hello to him and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to take a quick five. And he looked at me kind of sharply and I was like, I'm just going to take a quick break. And he's like, Oh, okay. You know? And again, I'm still not really thinking much of his demeanor at this point. Um, maybe just whatever papers his mom had would stress him out a little. I, I don't know. 
So I go and I sit on our front stoop and I was watching this video on Facebook and it was a love story between a, a veteran who lost his legs in battle and his wife who was so supportive. And I just remember I was watching that thinking, oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> be nice to have a love like that. And all of a sudden I feel this negative energy coming at me. And it was my husband, you know, coming up to join me, I guess. But he didn't say anything. And he was standing maybe 15 feet away from me. And he gets this body language where he almost looks like a serial killer looking at his next victim. And he's staring at me. And I remember I look up at him and I'm like, what's up? And he's like, what are you doing? Almost like I was doing something wrong. And I'm like, nothing, just taking a break. And that was it. And I'm like, okay, you know, in my mind, not my circus, not my monkeys. This has nothing to do with me. So I wrapped up my break and I went back in the house. So he follows me in and he purposely will be in my space but act as if I don't exist. Mm -hmm. And he knows that that, you know, pushes a button in me. And so finally I, I stop and I, I looked at him and I said, am I allowed to use oh, yeah. actual? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at him and I said, what the fuck is wrong with you? And he did the first thing that he's promised me that he would never do again and he bounces it back at me and he goes what the fuck's wrong with you nothing is wrong like I told you I was having a great day I don't know what's going on and he's like well and did it again well you're the one that's and I don't even remember what what he said and I'm like uh, okay uh, just get be out of my presence go outside with the kids I'm in here cooking food. And so he goes outside and my heart is just dumping, you know, like what happened? I, I, I don't, I don't get it. So I remember thinking, I, I need another break. And I had smoked the last cigarette in the pack. And so I approach Jason or my husband outside and I said, Hey, did you happen to buy another pack of cigarettes? And he looks and he goes, yeah. And I said, can you tell me where they're at? And he looks at me and he goes, go look. And I said, no, you go and look. You're the one that bought them. I don't know where you put them. And so he starts to go into the house and I'm following behind him. And I said, what the fuck is wrong with you? And he was, he was in front of me and he looks down at me over his shoulder and he goes, don't fuck with me. So, um, after all of that took place, I made myself scarce. I got my kids their food. Uh, I went upstairs. I left everybody alone. Eventually called my kids up to come get in the bathtub, yelled goodbye to his mom and thought, okay, I can't do this anymore. I'm so done with this. We've been through so many 
episodes. I, I mean, I, I could, any photo that I look at from the last 10 years, I can tell you what was going on behind the scenes. Family photos, memories, vacations. And it was all me putting in such an abundant amount of energy to make sure that he didn't become down in the dumps, Jason, or whatever this personality is. But this this is next level. I just came out of something that I didn't even understand. And you're going to treat me like this when I'm finally feeling better? So um, he, for the rest of the night, uh, acted as if I, I didn't exist. Um, and I told him that you need to get your stuff and you need to get out. I'm filing for divorce. And uh, he, I remember, maybe grabbed his car keys and grabbed a beer and went outside and said that he was going to sleep on our front porch swing. And I said, all right. Well, this is the first time uh, that I actually locked the doors and didn't open them back up because normally I'd feel guilty. Uh And I guess uh, the next morning when I uh, went downstairs to let our dog out, uh, he was sitting in the garage and he had this, uh, it's his victim face, you know, humble, Uh sorry, Um, And I remember that I had been thinking the entire night that this was my punishment for not being my normal self. He was punishing me. And I addressed that with him the next morning. And he's trying to tell me, no, no, that's that that wasn't it. But he had no reason for his behaviors, none. And I told him, um, call in sick to work. We're going we're going to go see our therapist together. And I marched him into, no, he'd been seeing our therapist for seven years oh. when uh, those first pregnancies started. And um, we walk into our therapy office together. And I sat down and I looked at our therapist and I said, I am not walking out of here today without a diagnosis. If I don't have one by the time our session is over, my next stop is an attorney's office. This is what happened last week. And we were able, you know, I had the, he held himself accountable because I was there. And, uh, you know, I said, I don't know if this is bipolar. I don't know if this is borderline personality disorder. I don't know what this is. All I know is that I can't do this anymore and I'm, I'm done. And um, after our therapist heard the story and saw that Jason was, you know, acknowledging that all of these things factually took place, Uh, He said, okay, guys, I really do think I have an idea of what's going on here. I need to get some paperwork from my office. I'm going to send you both home with um, an identical uh, packet. Uh, Jason, I want you to fill this out, every question, in view of yourself as best as you can. Bryn, I want you to fill it out in view of Jason. I'm not going to tell you what this is. Um, but at your next, you know, next week, I want you both back in here and we'll go over it. And uh, the next appointment, uh, he tallied up everything. And um, on my packet, uh, Jason scored a 98. 
on his packet, he scored a 96, and it was a definitive diagnosis, uh, covert passive-aggressive narcissist. So that's pretty much how we got his diagnosis. Now, if you were to ask him, he doesn't even remember taking a test. He thought that maybe our therapist just suggested it could be narcissism. Okay. I love the rewriting of history there. It's always yeah. uh, always deflecting, yeah. always changing the narrative. So yeah. so even though he's got this diagnosis, he's just nope, that wasn't definitive, that wasn't reality, Ga- right. gaslighting. Even though I bought, I bought a book, uh, I can't remember the author's name, but it's titled Covert Passive-Aggressive Narcissist. And I bought it on Amazon uh, pretty much, I think, that same day of the diagnosis. Uh, and I read the book, and I could not believe that somebody was writing my experiences this is exactly what I've been going through. Everything. The money, the sex, the the, the punishments. Uh, I, I was floored how the love bombing. Oh, my God, I didn't know that was a thing. And that's exactly what he did to me. Um, it, it picked him apart. And I was able to put all those puzzle pieces together. And what was so... Um, crazy was I got to this chapter about having a parent that is a covert passive aggressive narcissist and what it's like for the child. And I'm reading it in view of my kids looking at their dad, but the first page I realized I was reading my mom. Mm. Mm-hmm. Stern. Yeah. Yeah. And I was dumbfounded. But I even gave him that book. Um, I want to say the following two or three weeks after the diagnosis, um, he was kicked out of the house maybe 14 times because I told him I will never put up with this behavior. Now we know what it is. One tiny little thing. Get your shit, get out. And it happened on repeat. And there was um, one day in particular that we we were packing. We were leaving for Florida the next day. And um, I didn't even want him coming with. And I remember talking to my therapist about it. Like, I don't even want him coming. I Like, he's going to ruin it. And now I, I, I hate him. I feel so icky just being in his presence because all of this was controllable and he chose not to. He's chosen to be this way. And um, so anyways, we're packing and my daughter, uh, she was she had just turned five, like three days ago. She was four kind of 
just turned five and she had gone to the library with her grandma and the library had given her these little flower seeds um, to plant and she wanted to be creative and make flower soup and she was naming each of the little seeds and she needed a pot and she needed a big cup of water and um, I got everything for her thinking this will keep her occupied for a little bit so I can keep packing stuff up and uh as I, you know, put everything down, she takes this big mason jar of water and starts pouring it into the pot. And it's dripping down the bottom onto the kitchen table, which is then dripping onto the floor. And Jason walks in the room. And I remember immediately being on guard because I have to be the mediator because of the way he talks to them when there's a, a moment of a mess or, you know, um, it's very demeaning and I always have to be the the savior, you know? So I remember him walking in the kitchen and he was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he, he was actually handling it very well, considering, honey, honey, you're, you're spilling water all over the floor. Hang on, hang on. He gets a towel and he starts clean, cleaning it up. And I think, okay, I'm, I'm safe to go back to doing what I was doing. So I go back into the garage and no less than 30 seconds later, my daughter comes stomping out of the house and she goes, daddy's being mad at me again. And I said, what do you, I was just in there. And she goes, he took all my things away. And I told him, I got this. And I was like, like, you wanted to try to, to pour your water in the pot again? And she goes, yeah. And he won't let me. And he took it away. And I told him he needs to chill out. <laughs> And I said, oh, sweetie, okay, we need to talk to your dad about this because now my hurts, you know, uh-huh. let's talk to dad. And she goes, yeah, let's talk to dad. And so I get Jason to come out in the garage and I said, hey, so what just happened? And he looks at her and he goes, well, I told her that she's making too much of a mess. And so I, I, I put it away and she told me I had to chill out, almost like condescending towards her. And I said, um, right, but were you listening to her? Like, did you hear what she was trying to tell you that she's got this and maybe you could let her try again? And he's like, well, like we're, we're just doing things, you know, it's not a good time. And I said, honey, do you want to tell dad how that, how that makes you feel when he's not, when you feel like he's not listening to you? And this little girl, I'm not fabricating any of this. She says to him, dad, I always love you. I always want to make you feel safe and do nice things for you. Like if you wanted a glass of wine, I would tell mom and we'd get it for you. But when you talk mad at me like that, so she says, um, but when you talk mad at me like that, I feel like you don't love me and I'm only five. Do you think that it's okay for a little girl who's only five years old to think that when her dad's mad at her, that he doesn't love her? And I'm, I'm looking at her and I'm just like, wow, I didn't know she could articulate her feelings so well. And she just keeps on going. And she says to him, um, and you know, anytime that I act mad at you, I still love you. And I always tell you that I'm sorry, but when you act mad at me, you never tell me you're sorry. And do you think that that's okay that when you act mad at me that you don't say you're sorry? And he's looking at her with the victim face. I wish I could replicate it because it's it. he looks pitiful. 
And she goes, and that face, I don't like that face that you make. And uh, how did she put it? Um, that That's the face that you make when I know you're not listening to me. So, something like that. And uh, he says to her, honey, I always love you. And I'm sorry that I was acting mad at you. And that's pretty much all he could muster up. And she kind of just shrugs her shoulders and she goes, okay. And I, she just zips off on her bike and she's, she's done with it. And I looked at him and I said, she just turned five. These are the things I'm telling you that you don't know how you're affecting them. You have no idea how the way you treat other people affects them. And sadly, you don't really care because if you did, you would stop doing it and you don't, you just can't help yourself. And, you know, it's like something like that would have changed the entire trajectory of my life. If my child talked to me that way, uh-huh. not him. No, no, no. Nope. Nope. It's like just Groundhog's Day every day over and over again. So uh, last this uh, last summer uh, around Father's Day, we had a couple episodes and I've been disconnecting from him pretty much since the diagnosis, just kind of biding my time trying to figure out when is when when am I fully ready, not, not mentally or emotionally, but financially and, and to, to make my exit and to file for divorce. You know, when I'm, I want to have every duck in a row before I take that next step. Um, but I knew that I needed to start planting that seed for him. And after these couple of episodes that took place in June, I uh, decided that I kind of needed to set him up for failure. Um, And I wrote down a list of three requirements that he needed to fulfill in order for our marriage to even have a glimmer of hope. And I wrote down about 30 deal breakers. Um, In my lifetime and my children's lifetime, these are the things that will never, ever happen again. I'm going to give you three months to show me that you're working on these requirements. If I see that you're, you're doing them, I might extend it to six months. Um, but if one of these deal breakers happens, this whole thing is off. I'm filing for divorce. Do you understand that? And he's yes. And he took my list and, uh, that was in June. In mid-October, I checked in with him to see how his progress was, which is now well past the three months, and I knew it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked him if he had started any of the requirements. And now the three requirements. First one was a full psych evaluation, uh, and then a meeting with a psychiatrist to discuss medication options that could possibly help simmer down some of the tendencies that he has, his moods and uh, whatnot. Um, And then the third one was um, weekly appointments with a uh, 
therapist that specializes in narcissistic personalities. Mm-hmm. And so four and a half months went by. I asked him how the requirements were doing. And his response was, Brent, I, I know that I need help. And I'm like, right. So you haven't started the requirements? And he goes, no, like, I think I need to see a doctor for my memory. I can't. I, I just can't remember anything anymore. And I'm like, so you're saying that you haven't started the requirements because you you can't remember to do them? And he's like, well, yeah, you know, like, like I, I have them sitting there and like, like, and I'll call, right? Like I'll, I'll make a phone call and, you know, it goes to voicemail and like nobody calls me back. And then, you know, like I go to bed that night and the next morning it's like Groundhog's Day. Like I can't remember. And those are phrases I've told him before. I'm like, you live in Groundhog's Day. And now he's bouncing them back onto me like he thought of this. And, you know, I, I, nobody calls me back. And I just, I just forgot. I just, I just forget that I'm supposed to do that. And I, I'm just not surprised, but it's like, it's like having a conversation with a child trying to come up with a lie to get out of the punishment. And I said, well, you know, I have to be honest with you. I haven't forgotten. And I told you I'd give you three, maybe six months. And it's four and a half. Not to mention, you've already broken like six of my deal breakers. So at this point, I don't care if you do a requirement or not. As far as I'm concerned, our deal is broken. And as soon as I am ready... I will be filing for divorce. Do you understand? And he's, yeah. And I have already reached out to the attorney. Um, I have paperwork sitting in my inbox. I have to put the retainer down. I'm just trying to get through till school's out. So that way I don't have to make any adjustments there. Um, At this point, the market is so atrocious by where I live that a one bedroom shack is going for the same price that we pay for our mortgage. So I'm at a point where I'll take a two bedroom apartment for the next year. I will do whatever I need to do um, just to at least get out before the divorce process starts because I, I, I can't be under the same roof as him. Um, but I'm so excited. I'm so excited to have freedom. I'm so excited to start my healing journey. Uh, It's 42 years of baggage that I can't wait to sift through. Um, And just, just be there for my children because they understand daddy's brain doesn't quite work the same way as ours. I don't throw him under the bus. I don't talk badly about him, but they've questioned tendencies and behaviors before. Um, and they, they see it and I have to give them a reason without them thinking that it's them. Uh And that was the, the best one I could come up with is sometimes daddy's brain tricks him into thinking that he should be upset about something that our brains wouldn't tell us to be upset about. So I understand, you know, you spilled water 
on the floor, daddy's brain told him that it was a big deal, but our brains know that it's not. So don't, don't think that dad's being mean to you or being mad at you because you didn't do anything wrong. His brain just told him to act a different way than we think it should be. And they get it. They totally get it. They come to me though for everything. And it's always been that way. I'm their safe person. You know, they, they, uh, they understand that he doesn't listen and that he gaslights. They don't know what that means when they get older. I'll be able to explain, you know, more to them about this because I'm not going to shelter them from disorders like this. If he was bipolar, it wouldn't be some big secret. You know, I'd want to educate them. Mm-hmm. This is a disorder. Yeah. And his brain just doesn't work the same way. Yeah. So um, I want to have those resources for them and the tools for them for their healing. Um, because there's going to be weekends that something happens at dad's or, you know, um, and I, I'm going to have my arsenal ready to explain and have them see the big picture of, of what took place there. And hopefully it works out the way I am envisioning it to work out. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing an amazing job, I want to say. And, you know, they also say that just having one parent who has the ability to regulate their emotional state and be that consistent force in their lives and to have that safe and secure attachment with them, having that will definitely help them survive not having that with their father. And the fact that you're kind of teaching them already that his behavior is not a reflection of them is going to help them grow and navigate his behavior going forward because like you said you know there will be shared custody there will be times where they're solely with him and hopefully that will not affect their nervous system or their self-esteem because just because of the way that he um, behaves or reacts towards them. So that is amazing for your children, you know, and doing this work on yourself is really healing the next generation, which is, you know, something that I think we all hope for going through this, especially when we see so much trauma coming through from what our parents went through and why they are the way they Mm -hmm. are. Um, I can totally relate. You know, I did not realize that my mother was a narcissist. I didn't even know what narcissism really was as far as a personality disorder when I was going through this with my ex-husband as well. And then to realize, oh my gosh, it's, it's generational. Um, (laughs) you know, my mother is, and, you know, and even reflecting back on past romantic relationships like you had as well. There's so many similarities and the work that we do to, to, you know, heal 
ourselves really does really does impact the next generation so that hopefully your daughters won't grow up and your son won't grow up and attract abusive coercive controlling um, people with disorders they'll have a stronger sense of self a stronger self esteem and really mm -hmm. able to navigate their life with healthy boundaries and know that they're good enough they're worthy yeah. you know and they don't have to repeat those cycles again so the work you're doing is so important it's so amazing and um you know i just want to say that you know i feel for you and and what you're going through currently and um there really is a light at the end of the tunnel i think you see it already you know it's, it's there it's just <laughs> there it just has to get a little bit brighter yeah uh, but i'm i'm so I have so much self-love now, you know, I, that the people ask, well, if, could you change any of it? Would you change any of it? And of course not for the kids. No, of course not for the kids. Would I ever change anything? But no, I wouldn't change anything because these last two years, I have grown so much as a person because now I understand what it was I was dealing with. And I see my worth and I see, I don't care if I'm single for the rest of my life. I truly love myself now. Mm -hmm. I know I am an amazing human being with so much to offer just as a friend or a stranger in the store. Mm -hmm. um, just cause that's where my heart is. That's how it always has been. And it was just never viewed by anybody that was of importance. Um, but I don't think without, without going through what I went through and then ultimately finding out what it was I was dealing with, I don't know if I would have been able to learn and identify and recognize me. Yeah. And I, I have, and I am so grateful for that Yeah. because I'm moving forward that I got this. Yeah. Absolutely got this. And my heart breaks for the women that just aren't quite there yet. Yeah. But I hope that through my coaching that I can start peeling off those layers for others and show them that without self-love and without self-worth, we're not we're nothing. Yeah. We're we're just groundhogs day. <laughs> yeah. We're really Go lost. Repeat. Really lost. Yeah. Yeah. Having that epiphany and really, you know, finding yourself through the process of this, you know, of course it's unfortunate, but at the same time, you know, it probably wouldn't have, you wouldn't have yep. realized and had this self-awareness about mm -hmm. yourself and that none of this is your fault and it was actually something that was done to you not because of you and it's not your fault you know even though that's been the message all yeah. along that you're to blame and because of 
dealing with people that are very disordered and how they project onto mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. and our people-pleasing nature. We're so ready to accept the blame. As long as you love me, I will accept whatever you want to project onto me. Okay, it's all my fault, you know. Just, mm -hmm. just love me. Just stay with me. And so finding that, you know, self-empowerment, the, the journey of self-empowerment is, de is definitely a very powerful thing. And I see that in you and, yeah. you know, so that's a wonderful thing. I, I understand completely where you're coming from with that. So if anyone wants to reach out and connect with you, what is the best way for them to get in contact with you? Um, it could be any way, um, through Facebook, through Instagram, I can, um, share those, uh, with you. If yep. you want, I can send them, uh, through the email. Yep. My email, uh, is fine. My phone number is fine. Um, so I have no, uh, uh, conflict with anybody. Yeah. We'll share that. Reaching out. Yeah. We'll share that in the show notes. Definitely. And I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story and coming on the podcast today. It's been wonderful to hear, you know, all of what you've gone through and the awakening that you've experienced now in your life. It's a beautiful thing to witness. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being able to finally tell the story. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a healing part of the process as well to mm -hmm. share with others what we've gone through. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. See you on the next episode. What the Hell Just Happened is a Kick in the Hornet's Nest production created and hosted by me, Laurel Whittier. If you'd like to support the show further, you can share episodes with your friends and family, leave a positive review, and follow What the Hell Just Happened on Instagram. If you're interested in being interviewed on the podcast, please go to wthjh.com to share your story or email me at hello at wthjh.com. If you're in need of healing support, be sure to come and join my free and private Facebook group, Healing Narcissistic Trauma, or drop me an email at hello at healnarcissistictrauma.com. And please know that you are not alone in any of this. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, and you can go from living in survival mode to grow and thrive after the trauma of abuse.